In terms of care news, it was great to see Ian last week, and he is feeling a lot happier, which is really lovely. He's been able to come down to coffee mornings, and as, a, as I came down to church lunch um, last week, which was lovely. Marion was visited this week. Um, she's not particularly good. She's looking very thin and weak, and please remember her in our prayers, please. Frida Price is still in within shore and would love to have visitors. Um, visiting time is between 2.30 and 4, and if you um, would like to visit, then please contact her husband. Um, Jan or Rosie has his number, so um, if um, I'm sure she would appreciate um, some visits. And Jan also writes, please pray for those amongst us, not mentioned by name, who are going through difficult times at the moment, whether physical, emotional or otherwise. So whatever difficulties they're having, we just all pray to them, pray for them. We have a moment, um, we, have, we have time in a moment just to think about all of those who are struggling. Has anybody else got anybody else they would like me to pray for? Okay. If you just like to bow your heads. Lord God, we come again into your presence through the mighty name of Jesus to bring all our family into your mind. We know that you look after them. We know that you care for them. And we would pray that you would help us to do that also. We think of Ian and we think of Marion and we think of Frida. Lord, just be with them. We know specifically what their needs are, but we just ask that you would be with them, Lord. We think of Neil's colleague at work, who unfortunately has passed away, and we think and pray for her family, Stuart, Amy and Jack. It's a difficult moment for them in their lives, and we'd ask that you would bring some peace and a blessing to them. And Lord, we also think of all our young people who are going to land camp. It's a wonderful time that they can spend together exploring their thoughts around you and what you have in store for them. It's a wonderful time for them to spend together, Lord, just to enjoy each other's company and create friendships that, with your help, will last forever. And so, Lord, we would ask a special blessing upon those youngsters as they go off to land. Be with all those who lead the week as well. And so, Lord, we continue our service. We've mentioned only a few. Lord, you know all of our needs. You look into all of our hearts and you know what we all need. And so, Lord, in your infinite mercy, please bless us. Amen. Dave, David's asked us to um, read from Matthew 14 as our reading today, please. <clears throat> I think in preparation for what he's got to say, 
Um, and Sylvia is going to come up and read that, please. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday... The daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. 
You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognised Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Thank you, Sylvia. Before Dave, David comes to speak to us, we're going to sing another song from Praise the Lord, please. In heavenly love abiding, no change my heart shall fear, and safe is such confiding, for nothing changes here. The storm may roar without me, my heart may load be laid, but God is round about me, and can I be dismayed? So uh, praise the Lord, 53. David, now for his thoughts, please. I want you to picture the scene. The sun was setting over the Galilean hills. Darkness was fast approaching at the end of a stressful and tiring day. Jesus had recently learned that his cousin and close friend John had been gruesomely murdered on the whim of the wife of the despicable King Herod. What was Jesus' personal reaction to that distressing news? Well, we don't really know, of course. But we know that he had felt that he needed time to himself to commune with his Heavenly Father. Time, perhaps, to clear his head and think about the mission that his father had placed in his hands so much to do and so little time. So earlier that day he had taken a little boat and sought out a quiet spot, a solitary place, the NIV says, where he could meditate and pray. But it was not to be, because despite the fact that His preaching had apparently upset some people in his hometown. His miracles had made him something of a local celebrity, and a large crowd had quickly discovered where he'd gone. Under the circumstances, most of us would probably have muttered, Oh, go away, under our breath, if not out loud. And to make matters worse, Jesus knew that, if truth be told, Many of those gathering around him had come with with medical rather than spiritual aspirations. Now it goes without saying, of course, that Jesus' reaction, in spite of his physical and mental weariness, was anything but negative. Where we might have displayed anger or frustration, he felt only compassion. So what did he do? He healed their sick. And the record says, rather matter-of-factly, that he healed their sick. But we know, don't we, 
that uh, power went from him when he healed people. We know that from, from other places in the record. And we don't know, but I would guess that the whole healing process could be very draining. Still, he did it. And as evening approached, the crowds showed no sign of dispersing. And it was at that point that that Jesus' disciples intervened. I think perhaps they'd recognised their leader's mental and physical need for recuperation, but didn't feel able to be so blunt as to tell him directly. So they took a slightly different approach. These people are tired and hungry. Why don't you send them away to seek out refreshment in the local villages? But they had reckoned without Jesus' superhuman capacity for compassion. No need, no need to do that. He said, we'll give them something to eat. Actually, he said, you give them something to eat. Testing the disciples to see whether they had the faith to cope with miracles. But they hadn't. Hold on, they said. We've only got a few loaves and a couple of fish. Jesus, on the other hand, did have the faith in his Father's power. And what followed was one of those amazing miracles that leave us awestruck when we read about them. How did so small a picnic become so much? We can't even begin to understand the mechanics of it but Matthew assures us that 5,000 men were fed not to mention women and children incidentally we might uh, know that he does in fact mention women and children the only one of the gospel writers to do so only Matthew writing as we know for a Jewish readership, mentions them, seeming to emphasise their, their separateness by mentioning them separately. And his readers would appreciate that in, in those days, as is still true with many Orthodox Jews today. Women and children don't mix with the men in public gatherings. And it's just another of those little undesigned elements of realism that, uh, that I think bolster our confidence in the veracity of the Bible records, so I think it was worth mentioning. So, yet again, a major miracle revealed the power of God at work, channeled through the person of Jesus. And yet again, I'd suggest that this would be a wearying process for the man from Galilee, even though he was the Son of God. He needed a break, but those 5,000 plus people were not at all ready to grant him that. Matthew doesn't mention, but John in chapter 6 does, the fact that the people, hardly surprisingly in view of what he'd just done, were caught up in a wave of Messiah fever. 
And in typical Middle Eastern fashion, they made a lot of noise, the consensus of which, uh, John tells us, was that surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And John records uh, in verse 15, chapter 6, how Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to a mountain by himself. And so, one way or another, it doesn't say how, the crowds were persuaded to disperse and the disciples were persuaded to set off without him. Actually, you do have to wonder if they were reluctant to leave Jesus, recognizing his fatigue, because the record says that Jesus made them get into a boat and go on ahead of him while he dismissed the crowd. Anyway, at long last, Jesus was able to go up on a mountainside by himself to pray, and he spent most of the night in communion with his Heavenly Father. Meanwhile, down on the Sea of Galilee, all was not well with his disciples, and a little scene was developing that had, I think we can say, an important symbolic and spiritual significance, in addition to to being a very real human drama. During the night, in the pitch darkness, of course, a storm arose on the sea. Matthew writes that the boat was buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it, which uh, I fancy was a bit of biblical understatement. Now, I've never been to Israel, um, but I understand that uh, storms on that stretch of water can be very sudden and very severe. Some disciples were experienced fishermen, of course, but by no means all of them were at home on the water. And in the darkness, their reactions probably varied between concerned and terrified. Well, the symbolism isn't difficult to see, is it? Jesus is not with the disciples. In fact, in a sense, he's with his heavenly father as he communes with him in prayer. The disciples are in peril. They're in darkness. Every minute seems like an hour. They really want Jesus to be with them, but he isn't. And they perhaps wonder why he's left them in this predicament. So there's a sort of hint, isn't there, of our own position in that. We want Jesus to return. We desperately want Jesus to return. The world is full of problems. Our little boat is sometimes buffeted by storms in the darkness. We know, we know that Jesus will return, but when? There are lots of of scriptural reasons why we know know that he will come and here's another one that you you may not have thought of the, the symbolism of this little drama in Matthew 14 because Jesus did come to save the disciples from the storm and the darkness when did he come significantly he came just before dawn in the in the fourth watch of the night as older versions say Significantly, too, he came in a miraculous way. So which period of God's history 
are we living in? Well, we're pretty certain from other Bible references, aren't we, that we're, we're in the fourth watch of the night, so to speak, just before the dawn. So how do we respond to that knowledge, to that belief? How should we respond? Perhaps we can pick up some clues from the way that this drama played out in the remainder of Matthew 14. I love the way the story continues in, in verse 25. Just before dawn, it says, almost as if we should think nothing of it, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Of course, in, in the power of God, anything is possible. But I still marvel how Matthew describes it so calmly. The disciples, however, were, were not so calm. They're, they were, we are told, terrified. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that these men, so used to seeing startling, beneficial miracles at first hand, they'd just been personally involved in one after all, failed to recognize their master in the process of bringing a miracle of salvation to them. So overwhelmed were they by the mental and physical turmoil of their predicament. And there's a lesson for us here too, isn't there? Sometimes little miracles happen in, in our lives, maybe not on the scale of this one, but we need to have minds open to recognise them when they do occur. The, the disciples, Matthew tells us, thought they had seen a ghost. Now, I'm not sure what they meant by that. What, what did first century Jews believe about seeing ghosts or spirits? I'm not sure. But whatever it was, it's interesting that nobody's thought seems to have been, oh good, it must be Jesus. On the contrary, they were terrified. Now, Middle Eastern people, even today, tend to be rather loud with their emotional outbursts, and Jesus therefore couldn't have helped, but no, that they were scared to death. And his first reaction was again, Compassion. So he immediately shouted to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And now the spotlight of the story falls onto one particular disciple, the one called Simon Peter. As we read through the Gospels, we, we pick up snippets of information about most of Jesus' followers, enabling us to piece together something about their lives and their personalities but there's no doubt that the one we learn most about from the Gospels is Peter. So what do we know, or, or think we know, about him? Well, he seems to have been an impulsive man, an impetuous fellow who sometimes failed in, uh, in the modern idiom to uh, engage brain before opening mouth. He meant well, but sometimes he got a little ahead of himself, especially in his uncomplicated enthusiasm for the cause he'd so wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly espoused. For a lot of people, he is, I think they would say, their favourite disciple because they can identify with the things he did. He seems so undeniably human. I was going to say ordinary, but I hesitate to say ordinary because... He was actually anything but ordinary. 
but but you know what I mean. We can learn so much from him because there are so many times when we act as Peter acted or behave as he might have behaved. So here he is, about to unthinkingly take centre stage in a breathtaking dialogue with Jesus. He seems to begin, like the others, by being unsure whether it really is Jesus because he instantly replies, Lord, if it's you... It's almost as if he was testing Jesus, requiring him to prove who he is. But as we know, it quickly turned into a test of Peter's character. It's difficult to understand exactly what was going through Peter's mind, but whichever way you might interpret it, it does seem to define our vision of this impulsive man. If it really is you, Lord, he said, tell me to come to you on the water. Notice how I phrased it. Tell me to come to you on the water if you say it's possible Lord then it must be possible what, what did he think he was testing no wonder Jesus power his own faith or as we sometimes feel had, had he not really thought at all either way there was no going back as Jesus simply said, come. So he did. He stepped down out of the boat and he walked on the water towards Jesus. Make no mistake about that. He did walk on the water. Of course, that defied the known laws of physics, but that should not be a surprise to us. We know those laws can be temporarily suspended at God's bidding and indeed just had been because Jesus was already walking across the water. What might surprise us at first, although it really shouldn't, if we recall what Jesus said a number of times in relation to other miracles, is that this reversal of the normal laws of nature depended on faith. Jesus, of course, had complete faith that his heavenly father could enable him to walk on the water. And so he could. And at that moment, Peter, with his impulsive personality, suddenly had that kind of faith. William Carey, the great Baptist missionary of the 18th and 19th centuries, had what uh, today we would call uh, a mission statement, pun not intended, which was this. Expect great things of God and do great things for God. And at that moment, in, in the growing light of dawn across the Sea of Galilee, Peter had a William Carey moment, so to speak. He expected something not just great, but seemingly impossible of God. And it happened. Does your faith, does my faith ever reach such heights? Well, I dare to think that occasionally it does. But I also know that too often it doesn't last. If that happens to you, don't panic. Just think of Peter standing there on the lake 
and take some comfort from what happened to him. I don't mean the sort of comfort that says, well, he failed, so maybe I'm not so bad after all. No, nothing like that. There are much more important lessons to learn from this gripping little cameo on the lake. What did Peter do? He took a few steps and then the strength of the wind hit him, both literally and mentally, we might say. And suddenly he was afraid and he began to sink. So what had gone wrong? He'd taken his eyes off Jesus and looked instead at the choppy waters all around him. That's all it takes. Taking our eyes, our minds off Jesus and seeing only the real world around us. That's all it takes. Except, of course, that those worldly things crowding around us are not the real world, are they? Jesus is the real world. Peter's faith had evaporated as quickly as it had come to him. That's the sort of person that he was, we know. So he began to sink and he cried out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And if you, you forgive me for following a little side path here, very briefly, I promise. I was interested to read one commentator who said that those three words, Lord, save me, constitute the shortest prayer in the Bible. If you accept that it was, in effect, a prayer, and I think I do, then it opens up a number of lines of thought. The line that that particular commentator took was the idea that prayers don't have to be long with pseudo-reverent formalised introductions in order to be effective. Uh, in fact, I can't really do better than, than quote the commentator. He said, um, if Simon Peter, he wrote, had prayed this prayer like some of our preachers pray, e.g., Lord, you are omnipotent, omniscient, you who care for all your children, etc., etc., Peter would have been 20 feet under before he got to his request. Uh, Peter got right down to business, he concluded. And you and I need to pray like that. End of quote. You'll recognize, uh, no doubt, that that, that commentator was uh, American. <laughs> but, uh, well, um, I, I think he has a point. Not that there isn't a time and a place for, for longer, more measured prayers. Of course, Jesus spoke some himself. But there are times when an instant prayer is required. Um, have a look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 sometime. So back to the story. I said that there was a lapse of faith on Peter's part, and I'm not speculating here. Uh, we know that it was a lapse of faith because Jesus said to him, and, and I don't think I'm wrong in imagining a compassionate tone in his voice here, despite the rebuke. You of little faith, why did you doubt? The implication is clear. If, if your faith hadn't failed you, you could have continued your amazing walk. So we learn how absolutely crucial our faith is 
in our Christian life. But we also learn from what followed that it isn't faith in ourselves that matters. It's faith in the saving power of Jesus. Because as he was saying those words, and here is the most important point, Jesus reached out his hand and caught hold of Peter's hand. And then what happened? Well, it doesn't say so in in so many words, but bearing in mind that Peter was already, I'm sure, some way from the boat, it seems clear that Jesus and Peter walked back to the boat hand in hand. What a powerful lesson. And what tremendous encouragement. All we need is faith. And when that faith wavers, even then, Jesus helps us to recover it. You remember that other occasion, uh, actually in Mark chapter 9, when a man said, if, to Jesus, if you can heal my son, he said, and Jesus replied, if, everything is possible for one who believes. And you remember what the man said? He said, I believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. And and I imagine Peter feeling a bit like that as Jesus walked him back to the boat. Isn't that wonderful? Not only is our salvation dependent on faith rather than our personal achievements or, or lack of them, but more than that, Jesus will help us to maintain our faith when it falters. So there it is. Jesus and Peter climbed into the boat and Matthew says rather casually, the wind died down. There's no mention here of Jesus commanding the storm to cease. But it surely cannot be, uh, as it might seem to suggest, that the disciples didn't recognize this sudden calm as yet another miracle. No, they certainly did recognize it, for for Matthew records that they worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Well, possibly the reason for Matthew's abruptness here is simply that he'd already described an earlier similar incident in chapter 8 of his gospel. That was, you'll recall, the time when Jesus was asleep in a boat with the disciples as a furious storm blew up. They frantically woke Jesus up and after again chastising them for their lack of faith, he rebuked the wind and the waves and it became completely calm. The effect of this earlier event on the disciples was that they said, what kind of man is this? Interestingly, after the second time in chapter 14, they said, in effect, now we know what kind of man this is. He's the son of God. Whether or not he actually spoke to the elements on the the second occasion doesn't matter. 
what does matter is that in addition of course to standing in awe of the real power that God gave to Jesus over the elements of the world that we live in we should recognize the spiritual symbolism of the way this story ends and it's not too difficult to see is it in fact it's so plain that I hope you you won't think that it's almost true too trite to, to mention that the Sea of Galilee is not an enormous stretch of water but a long way from the shore in a storm in the middle of the night it might as well be the Atlantic Ocean sometimes our lives feel a bit like that don't they in the words of a famous Ella Fitzgerald song into each life some rain must fall the trouble is that sometimes it's more than just a little rain it can seem like you're in a tiny boat in a full-blown Sea of Galilee storm if that never happens to you you're very lucky if it does happen to you then you're very lucky because you know that you have Jesus watching over you so here's our final thought and it's very simple remember this if if you remember nothing else from this talk storms may arise as you make your journey on the sea of life but if Jesus is there in the boat with you no storm can ever overwhelm you Thank you, David. And quite often we get ourselves into a lot of bother, don't we, in our lives, when we don't engage our brains. But yet, I also like the thought that actually, when Peter saw where he was, Jesus was there. Straight away. There was no time delay at all. Jesus is there by our side as well. Jesus didn't go through his life without thinking. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. From the start of his life, from talking to the scribes and the Pharisees at the age of 14, Jesus knew what his destiny was. But yet, he could take time and to be compassionate to those that he came into contact with. Before we take bread and we take wine to remember what Jesus has done for us, we're going to sing from Praise the Lord, please. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And he took the cup and gave thanks as well and offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
And so in our quiet space, we do the same. We come and we break bread and we drink wine to remember that Jesus who walked alongside Peter on the water. Who fed those many people on the hillside. But also that Jesus who gave himself for each and every one of us. As our brother David has exalted us this morning, we are we are heaved to against the storm here in this vessel of fellowship. And we are thankful now that we can take this bread, this symbol of your dear son. And it is your dear son who is the hard keel of our lives. As I said, we're in the vessel of fellowship and it is the vessel of fellowship that keeps us keeps us from the storm and the storm stormy sea what is the sea the sea is rent by the waves the sea is torn apart we look at the world the world of man and we see a world of failure failure of government failure of governance failure of capitalism failure of democracy I don't have the faith to step out into that world. I'll heave to against the wind. I'll heave to against the storm. I know that this keel is safe. I know that the vessel of fellowship is safe. I know that the holy word of God is safe. Like my brother Peter, even though I know that the new covenant I've made with you is true. With this bread I do cry out, save me. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for the body of Christ, which we share now. Amen. We can identify with Peter as someone who believed but whose faith was weak. We can identify with the Father who prayed that the Lord would help his unbelief. Lord, as we come now to share wine that speaks to us of forgiveness that speaks to us of washing clean that speaks of new starts and wholeness Lord we pray that you will give us the faith to live our lives as though we believe it. To live our lives as though we have been forgiven.
to live our lives as though you love us enough to give us your son. Lord, as we take this wine, or as we watch others take this wine, Lord, I pray that you will give us the faith Fill in the gaps to help us live the lives that you created us to live. That you created us to live in Jesus. Amen. So through this wine we for each and every one of us to wash us clean to reclothe us so the father doesn't see any sins feeling of peace that you've got in your hearts this feeling of secureness of knowing that Jesus is walking, holding your hand as we leave this place. Just as he was with Peter, walking back to the boat, Jesus is holding our hand. We are going to close with a prayer through Benedict, please. After we've sung... A song which I first sung at Cambridge Sunday School years and years ago, and I've loved it ever since. Lord Jesus, I have promised to serve you to the end. Be now forever near me, my master and my friend. We thank you for this marvellous morning, for this time to sit and reflect and just be in your presence and to know so surely that you love us and have worked so hard to save us and for us to feel loved. Father, as we go out into another week of service to forward this Jesus project, this kingdom project that you have in store, Father, please energise us and be with us. Help us to know you are there and to lead us in doing right and just and mercy. Father, we thank you for all things, and we especially thank you for Jesus now. Amen.